the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you have tuned in to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever is on your heart or mind, we'll do the best that we can to answer. All you have to do is call us. Dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. Outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, just use your hands-free feature of your phone with a free KSLR mobile app and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I think we're going to get a lot of calls today. I think that because we had about 20 plus kids in here praying for the program today, so I know it's going to be a good one. A couple of very quick things tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we're going to be finishing the book of Second Samuel. When I get done with these books, after having taken the church through um, however long it takes, we've been in First and Second Samuel for for a long time. Uh, it's it's really really satisfying to be able to say, Jesus, we have now as a church family read every word of these two books together or this book together. And uh, it's it's always a neat accomplishment. Tonight uh, is a pretty important study um, to close the book of Second Samuel. And uh, hope you enjoy it. You can watch it at calvaryessay.com if you can't get here live. Uh, also, because this is Wednesday, that means tomorrow is Thursday. Uh, that means Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Ladies, that's a program especially for you. So if you have any questions or calls or need uh, any encouragement, Paula will be here in studio to take care of that tomorrow. One more time with the phone number, and then we'll get to some questions. 340-9585. My first question today is from Michael. And he says, uh, Pastor Ron, should churches preach more about politics and the problems in the world? Uh, Michael, that's not the church's job. Uh, The church's job is to testify of Christ, to teach people, equipping the body of Christ for works of ministry. We do that by teaching them the Word of God. There's lots of places you can go from online to uh, supporting individual candidates. There's all kinds of places you can go and talk about politics and the problems in the world. But you see, Michael, we have the answer to the problem in the world. And that's why we teach Jesus. I could take my valuable time, and I have been, in in all full disclosure, Michael, I've been criticized um, a lot for not being more politically involved, not allowing candidates from a certain uh, party to to, to speak in the church or to solicit votes or support. I've been told repeatedly that I ought to be uh, more involved in worldly things, and yet my response is always the same. But we have an otherworldly message Our hearts and minds here are set on things above, not on the things of this earth. 
And in reality, how am I going to convince anybody or teach anybody that we have the answer to the problems here on earth if I'm not sharing with them who Jesus is? It's an amazing thing the Apostle Paul told us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we're to grow in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of His will for our lives. So value in growing in knowledge, that's not a pursuit that we're to, to, to chase, but to grow in the knowledge of God, who He is, what He's like. Grow in the knowledge of what He's done for us and learn to appreciate the height and width and depth and breadth of His love but also to grow in the knowledge of His will for our lives. And uh, there's nothing in His will about politics. You know, if I take, uh, I, I usually, on Sundays especially, when the larger crowds are here, I usually preach for 40 to 45 minutes, teaching verse by verse through the Bible. Imagine, Michael, if I took that time to talk about a, a political race, or this problem in the world, or that problem in the world. Now, I get to talk a lot about problems in the world because the Bible deals with those problems. And in spite of what we might think, it, those problems haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years. The problems are always the same. The problem has always been and will always be us, mankind, our propensity to sin. And so what we do is we take the time to declare Christ and Him crucified. And that makes us a lot like the Apostle Paul. He says, you know, I preach Christ and Him crucified. Keep it simple was his message. And that's the message that we follow. So, Michael, we, I don't think churches should do anything other than teach the Bible. That's what we do. And then we're equipped. Let me just steal one, one other area here. When we do that, when we're faithful in doing that, then God calls people from the church... And he calls them to address those problems in the world. You know, I could talk about health care. Um, or I could teach people to follow Jesus' will for their lives. And then when they do that, yeah, he tells some of them to, well, let's start Malta Medical. Malta Medical, for those of you who don't know, is a 100% um, a, a sponsored by this church, a free family practice doctor's office. It's just down the... The, the, the strip mall from us a little bit um, every day or nearly every day somebody gets saved but every day we're ministering to people we're praying for people so we're actually doing something about that problem in the world instead of just talking about it those are the important things to understand when we're equipped for the works of ministry and God is able to reach our hearts with what that ministry is and then we get to be about solving those issues. So, Michael, I hope that makes sense to you. Politics is not what the church is to be about. I know I said one more thing, but let me just add one more thing. Too often in our church culture, in our evangelist, uh, evangelical culture, um, we give the impression that unless you're on one side of the political divide, you don't know who Jesus is. And that's simply not the truth. And that's why it's better if we just keep talking about Jesus. Now, here's the question that I ended with yesterday. I said I want to come back to it a little bit today. So I'm going to do that. Uh, I've already heard that I offended some people. And there's always an exception. You know, I'll get a, an email that says, um, well, I met my wife online or I met my husband online. Good for you. You're the exception that proves the rule. The question came in anonymously right at the end of the program yesterday. Is it okay for Christians to date online? And because I only had a minute, I said, no, I can answer the question. Once more, the is it okay questions. There's a lot of things that we can do, but what we want to do as Christians is to evaluate those things as they relate to our witness for Jesus. Now, if you take matters into your own hands by actively looking for a husband or a wife online, let me ask this question. Where's the faith in that? Where's the faith in that? I tell you all the time on this program, I tell our church the same thing. If you walk with Jesus every day, it's impossible to miss his will for your life. It's impossible. 
And I think when we turn to online dating, this is one example of what happens when we become impatient with God. I think here's the thing that we all need to understand. When it takes some time for the right man or the right woman to come into your life, we fail to understand that God is changing us. He's preparing us for the moment when that man or that woman comes into our lives. And if we'll just be patient and wait, not try to speed things up by taking matters into our own hands, what we're saying is, Jesus, you know what? You've got every phase of my life, every facet of my life, you're in control of. And so I'll let this one be under your control as well. And just say, Lord, I'll wait. Now, I think that going to church and being open to the possibility that your husband or your wife is there, the person that you're going to marry, uh, at least in church, if there's somebody that you're interested in, you get an opportunity to observe their heart to serve, their heart for God's people, and their heart for God. You don't get to do that online. It's just something, again, I'm, I'm 100 years old, and I understand I'm not going to change the world. So what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to change people in the world, but not change the world. I realize that you can go to a website where other lonely people are looking for maybe their husband or their wife. And you can look at pictures, read about interests, and think, well, that'd be nice if that would be nice. But I still ask the question, where is the faith? Where is the faith? Once more, I want to say this. If you found your husband or your wife online, God bless you. God is good. But I'm in favor of letting Jesus be in control of every facet of our lives. And Anonymous, I just don't think what he's going to do is say, you know, go online. Don't trust me. Don't follow me. Go online and do this yourself. My experience is that everything we do in our own strength is fraught with troubles. So I hope that helps. 340-9585. I'm running out of questions, so we need some calls. Or out of if you're out of the area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Here's another anonymous question. Um, he or she wants to know, how is it fair that people who don't believe in Jesus are suddenly damned to hell for eternity? Well, there's nothing sudden about it, Anonymous. John chapter 3, Jesus says we are condemned the moment we're born. When we taste air for the first time, we begin dying at that moment. It's not sudden, it's gradual. But see, we're born into sin. Surely I was conceived in sin in my mother's womb. That's what King David wrote. And so we're born condemned. We inherited a sin nature from our federal father, Adam. And the result of that inheritance is that we're all of us going to sin, which is going to separate us from God forever. So whether you're a believer or not, before you accept Jesus Christ, we're all on that same path to hell. So there's nothing sudden about it. Now here's what I would ask you, Anonymous. What's fair about Jesus wiping away all of your sins and taking you to heaven? You know, Jesus proved he was God incarnate. There is no doubt that Jesus claimed he was God. There's no doubt that his father validated that his sacrifice was acceptable by the resurrection from the dead. A man lived, a man died, and a man didn't stay dead. Just as he said he would. And that information is available to everyone. And yet the sinner who doesn't want to believe in Jesus and who is on that path to eternal separation from God, that man or that woman rejects God's answer for sin. 
See, that's the thing. We look at people like, well, they're good people, they're nice people, it's not fair. But if the standard of heaven is perfection and nobody can measure up and God freely gave us his perfection through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and all we have to do is believe. He doesn't ask us to take a test and pass it. He doesn't ask us to do 10 years worth of good deeds. He just says, will you believe? And when we say yes and ask Jesus into our hearts, all of our sins are forgiven. Everything that stood against us was canceled. And because it was canceled, suddenly we get to go to heaven. Anonymous, I've got a picture on the wall in my office here um, with the church studio. And there's a picture, the door is kind of open about two-thirds of the way. And you can see inside is this glorious banquet hall. And there's this wonderful banquet, and Jesus has opened the door, and there's a man on his knees, not dressed in the wedding clothes, the banquet clothes that everybody else in there has on, but just in his old clothes, and he looks kind of beaten and haggard, and Jesus has his hand reached down and touches his hand, and the, the, the guy's face and the, the words on the picture, me? And Jesus is inviting him into the banquet. See, everyone in the world is invited to that banquet. But the only ones who get to go are the ones who say yes. Jesus is big on RSVPs. <laughs> and when we RSVP, he invites us into the banquet hall. But there's no other way to get in. So what's not fair is that somebody who is as horrible as I was, and I mean I was terrible, I was almost 40 when I got saved, and I did a lot of really, really shameful and disgusting things. It's not fair that I'm going to heaven. But what Jesus has done is made me perfect. And that's the only way we get into heaven. So, again, there's no sudden damnation. We're condemned the minute we take our first breath in this life. hope that makes sense to you. Here is another anonymous question. I think all religions are pretty much teaching the same thing. Why do you claim that Christianity is different? Well, anonymous, Christianity is different. Let me give you a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's the only so-called religion, and I hate the use of that word, but it's the only so-called religion in the world where we don't have to do something to be right with God. Every other religion in this world, in the history of this world, has been about becoming acceptable to God through the good things that we do, earning our way to heaven. In my answer to the last question, we can't earn our way to heaven because we can't be perfect. So instead of us trying to reach up, which is what religion is to God, a relationship through Jesus Christ is God reaching down to us. No matter how far down we are, no matter how miserable our lives are, Jesus' desire is to reach down to us and pick us from the pit and take us to be with him. So it isn't about what we do, it's about what has already been done for us. And that's a truth that we really need to understand. Even Christians, sometimes we just think, well, my sins aren't as bad as somebody else's sin. All sin is an offense to God. And Christianity is the only religion where God is, does, did, will do all the work. It's the only way I could have gotten in, anonymous. Now, what's the validity for that claim? The empty tomb of Jesus. You see, every other religious leader who's ever lived, they died. And they stayed dead. If we knew where all of them were buried, we could go to the tombs. If we dug them out, we could see that their bones, their remains are still there in some fashion or form. But not Jesus. There was an empty tomb 
What did the angel say when Peter and John and Mary and the other Mary ran to the tomb? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has more evidence to substantiate it. We're not talking blind leap of faith here. All one has to do is look at the evidence. It is overwhelming, undeniably so. And we have to conclude that Jesus is God. Now that doesn't mean people are going to accept him, but at least when they reject him, they can do it honestly and say, well, I know he's God, but I don't care. The empty tomb is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. The other thing that I want to say, Anonymous, is this. Every religion claims exclusivity. Everyone. That's why they believe what they believe, because they think they're right. They think it's true. And truth is a term that's mutually exclusive. Two things that contradict one another can't both be true. So if what Islam says is true conflicts with what Christianity says is true, either one or both of them isn't true at all. And the teachings are vastly different. It's not like we're all on a journey taking our own separate path to get to the same destination. Jesus said there's only one way. And if you reject that, you're rejecting a God who was murdered and didn't stay dead. And there's all kinds of explanations. Oh, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Um, he just appeared to die. He was swooning. It's called the swoon theory. Or his disciples took the body and hid it. So he really didn't rise from the dead. They just couldn't find the body. How then do you explain that this man, Jesus Christ, without the benefit of social media, without the benefit of modern transportation, over the last 2,000 years has changed the world as no other man or woman in the world has ever done? The impact he's had on this world that we live in is undeniable. Well, I would suggest to you that it's because he really is alive and he's still in control and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So how can I claim Christianity is different? It's so simple. Jesus looked with mercy down. He looked down on a sinner like me. A blasphemer, a liar, a cheater. A complete jerk. That's who I was before I met Jesus. And he asked me to be his. And when he asked me to be his, Anonymous, all I had to do was say yes. And that day, it was in February of 1991, that day changed everything for me and I've never been the same. If my religious leader was dead, that would be impossible. But because Jesus not only came and died and rose from the dead, he then condescended to live in me in the form of the person of the Holy Spirit. And that means that power that raised Christ from the dead 2,000 or so years ago is still available to me every single day. And this man who was once dead, walking around, physically I was alive, but I was dead spiritually. And then what it means is that this man was born again. And that's why Christianity is different. No other religion can change a person's nature. No other religion is transformational by nature. So those are the things you have to consider, Anonymous. I pray that you will come to know who Jesus Christ is. And then you'll find out that we're not teaching anywhere near the same thing.
that the other religions in this world teach. I have no pressure on me to be good or do good. I have no pressure on me to measure up to anybody else's standards. Why? Because I'm accepted in the Beloved already. And the Holy Spirit was given to me as a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance to come. And every day, Jesus is with me. Every day, He speaks to my heart. I open His Bible. He speaks to my mind. And I'm not alone. That's how Christianity is different. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. I hope you'll come to a thriving saving faith in Jesus Christ. We have 30 minutes left. I would love some phone calls and some questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. We have 30 minutes left in the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program here is a question uh, just came in to our email inbox anonymously uh, it says can we assume that satan's rebellion happened after the creation of the earth Revelation 12.9 says that the great dragon was thrown to the earth. Now, I'll tell you in advance, Anonymous, that um, probably way more people disagree with the answer I'm about to give you than, than would agree with me. But I personally believe that his rebellion happened after the creation of the earth. I personally believe, I can be more specific, after the sixth day when God saw that man, Adam, was so magnificent, said, this is very good. Uh, I think that's what inspired Satan's rebellion. Satan, we know, especially from Ezekiel 28, was the most magnificent of all of God's angels. Um, the King James Version of, of Ezekiel 28 indicates that that uh, music emanated from his wings, and that's why he's often was referred to as a worship leader of heaven. But being beautiful, being the best of the best, I think when he saw God's heart toward the man that he'd made and said, no, 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 this is my best work. Now, by the way, we know that, that that's what he said because... Uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that we are his workmanship. Uh, the Greek word is poema. We get our English word poem. Um, it, it's, it's as though we're being told that we're his, the expression of the beauty of the mind and heart of God. And so when mankind was created on day six, I think at that very moment, that very moment, Satan began to rebel. I will cast my throne above the Most High. I will be worshipped rather than one who worships. He just wanted to be God himself. And of course, God allowed that to happen. And we know that a third of the angels, the fallen angels, ultimately, uh, were deceived and, and, and also rebelled against God. Now, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 is a little bit different than what you're talking about. I don't think that's the proof text. Um, let me go back to verse 6 and then just read it. This is where the woman who is Israel fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Here's the verse that you were talking about. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now, the context, I went back to verse 6. 
because this is the end of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years. And so I think the Revelation 12 passage is predictive rather than a proof text that he fell uh, after the creation of man. Um, I think that most people think that sometime in eternity passed and we have no clue as to when that would be. Uh, that's when, when, when Lucifer fell. Uh, I just happen to disagree and I more take your side in the sense that uh, I believe that he fell, as I said, uh, after the creation of man. That's about as specific as we can be because there is no proof text on that whatsoever. So thank you, Anonymous, for the question. Thanks for listening to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a question from Randy. He writes, in Ephesians 4.27, we're told not to give the devil a foothold. What exactly does that mean, and how do we do it? Well, Randy, this is a really important passage of Scripture, so I'm going to read this for you. Again, I'm going to go back a couple of verses to set the context. Paul says to Ephesians, uh, to the Ephesians in chapter 4, beginning now in verse 25, he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Uh, the idea there is where a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Here's the result. Put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Then it continues, if you've been stealing, you must steal no longer. Um, uh, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others, and on and on and on. Here's what giving the devil a foothold means. It means we're giving Satan an opportunity to do the work he wants to do, which is to destroy us. And what Paul is doing in writing to the Ephesians is trying to give us a, a, a sort of a stepping stone how we can walk in the knowledge that we don't need to be afraid of the enemy. We're, we're stronger because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, but at the same time, he wants us to know the kind of things that would give the devil a foothold. By that I mean we invite him into our lives through these kind of behavior. Uh, put off falsehood. When you lie, you're giving the devil a foothold. That's a sin separating you from fellowship with God, and the devil is always going to take advantage of that. Uh, in your anger, do not sin. Now, anger in and of itself is not a sin. But too often we think of our anger as being righteous. Somebody did something wrong to me. Our anger is not righteous. Jesus's was. God's was. But ours is not. So if we sin in our anger, you've given the devil a foothold, sort of a leg up in his effort to destroy us. Uh, if we go to bed angry, boy, this is great counsel for husbands and wives. Don't go to bed angry. Deal with the issues that you're angry about and do it in a godly way. Because if you go to sleep angry, you're going to give the devil a foothold. Now, I deal with horrible nightmares. I just, it's just, from the day I got saved, it just seems like nightmares have been a part of my life. And, um, it's so bad at times that the last thing I want to do is give Satan the opportunity to make him even worse. And so I'm not going to go to bed angry. I'm going to be sure that I can talk to the Lord with unbroken fellowship. Uh, if you are stealing, uh, you're giving the devil an opportunity to destroy you. Uh, if filthy talk comes out of your mouth, you're giving the enemy an opportunity to destroy. That's what it means to give him a foothold. And believe me, um, Randy, he doesn't need any help, the devil, in destroying you. So uh, we need to stand really, really firm uh, in that place where we're protected from an enemy. Daniel wants to know, I don't understand why God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. Can you help me understand? Well, I think, Daniel, you have to understand first that this was a test. God asked, but he never intended or desired Abraham 
to sacrifice Isaac. He never did. There was a couple of reasons that he did this. One was it was a test for Abraham. But the other is that it was a picture that God was intentionally creating of a, another father who would send his son to die. But this time, there wouldn't be any stopping the execution. And of course, that's a reference to the father who had to turn his back on Jesus as he lay dying on this cross, becoming sin for us. So he asked him to test him. Now here's what I think is clear from the passage in Genesis 22, Daniel. It, it, it appears clear to me that Abraham was putting Isaac first in his life, even ahead of God. It wasn't always that way. It was many, many years when Abraham was so grateful that this miracle son coming from his and Sarah's body was a gift from God and he was one of the most grateful men on earth for this gift. But then like a lot of us, I've seen this happen when parents have a baby, especially a baby that they've been wanting to have and, or maybe didn't think they could have. Um, that baby becomes like a little idol to them. Well, Isaac at this point was a young man. He wasn't a kid. Uh, he could have been as much as 23 or 24 years of age. We don't know for sure. Most scholars would tend to place him in the 16 to 19 age category. But Abraham's whole life revolved around him. God says, do you remember when we used to be close, Abraham? Do you remember when every day you got up and the first thing you thought about was me? Well, those days are gone, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Choose who you love more, me or him. Go kill him. But again, Daniel, I want you to understand, it was never God's intent. He always knew that he was going to rescue Isaac from his father's hand. So Isaac was never in any danger. But the test was to Abraham. Can you imagine the three days from the time they left to the time they reached Mount Moriah? And by the way, uh, we're going to see another sacrifice um, on Mount Moriah tonight at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Well, in the exact same place. After a three-day journey, Isaac looked around and said, Father, we have everything we need for the sacrifice, but where's the ram? the lamb. And Aram's answer prophetically was God will provide himself a sacrifice. That's a picture, of course, of Christ. At the end, when God spared him, we can begin to understand the relief that Abraham would have felt. But he would have known that God is good. And he would have known that he almost lost that special relationship as a friend he had with God because Isaac became more important to him. Now that's a lesson for all of us to learn from. If there are things more important to you than Jesus in your life, you got to kill him. you got to get rid of him. But Daniel, Isaac was never in any danger at all. Not for a moment, and God knew it. Abraham three-day journey he had to come to the conclusion we learned this in Hebrews 11 that he came to the conclusion well God you made me promises and you can't lie so if I kill him you got to raise him from the dead and Hebrews says and figuratively he was risen from the dead so I hope that answers your question Daniel don't be freaked out by the request it was just God saying who do you really love more and when it was over, he said, I can see that you love me more. Now you know, Abraham, that you love me more. I'm first. God always comes first. Here's another anonymous question. It seems impossible to me that the Bible is anything more than a book written by men. So how can I be sure? Uh, I was thrilled to get your question today, anonymous, because... Um, this question is exactly the wrestling match that I had to go through um, 
now 27 years ago. Um, I got saved, I met Jesus, it was a radical transformation. But I still had all of these questions. I was so curious, I would ask everybody questions. The problem was they would always answer the question with, well, the Bible says, and then they'd give me what the Bible says. And I didn't understand how a book written by men could also be written by God. It made no sense at all to me. But I concluded that if everybody just attributes everything they say and believe to the Bible, my mission is to find out whether or not it's true. How can I trust this Bible when I know it was a book written thousands of years ago by men? And I challenged the Lord to show me. I wanted to be sure. My heart was in the right place. But he needed to show me. Now, Anonymous, it didn't happen instantly. But it didn't take very long either. I did the work. I purposed in my heart. If I find out what's true, Lord, I'm going to do it and I'm going to serve it the rest of my life. But I need to know. And for me, it was just about three months of diligent daily study, not only in the Word, but in books that were critical of the Word of God, authors that didn't believe it, liberal authors, conservative authors, some who so said fastly supported the Word of God. And a day came where I was convinced, I'll never forget the moment either, it was at the Claremont School of Theology in Southern California. It was, remains one of the most liberal schools of theology in the entire country. Don't believe anything now that, that I hold near and dear. But they had a great library filled with good stuff and bad stuff. And I started going through those books and checking it out for myself. And one day, it really was almost as though Jesus were sitting at that table with me physically. And it was as though he looked at me and said, are you convinced yet? And I remember saying this out loud. I, I said, I'm convinced. This is the very Word of God. And from that day forward, Anonymous, my life was never the same. From that day forward, I never had a moment's doubt about my salvation, about who Jesus was, or whether or not the Bible was really His Word. Now, all of that, to say you need to find out for yourself, it's the most important question you can ever ask, but you have to be honest enough to find out for yourself. This is a conviction that has to come to you from God. And once you are convinced, then never ever let go of that. It's God pushing the pins of men. Communicating, then preserving supernaturally His Word. And we have a Bible that we can depend on. Find that out, and your life will change forever. So I hope that helps. Phones have been quiet today on this Wednesday, maybe because it's so cold. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's see here. There. Hold on just one second. Somebody's trying to get through. Here's a question that just came in. This is from our email inbox from Lori. Pastor Ron, do you think we will be able to talk to God's people in the Old Testament and New Testament Bible characters in heaven and hear their stories, or will we just know all things? I was having this discussion with someone lately, and they thought we just know it all the moment we get there. I was thinking it would be way more fun to hear it from them. What do you think, based on your knowledge of the Bible? Lori, a couple of things. Uh, heaven is going to be fun no matter what happens. So it's, I think what will happen in heaven is, uh, we know from 1 Corinthians 13, we now know in part, then we'll know in full. So we'll know everything. 
So we're not going to go to Abraham and say, gosh, what were you thinking when you got three-day journey to sacrifice Isaac? And we're not going to look at, at Moses and say, what was it like to see the Red Sea parted? Uh, it's not going to be that at all. We're going to know these things, and we're, we're going to be able to communicate um, with such an intimacy that it won't be like lecturing. Now, Jesus is going to teach us the secrets of the universe, all of them, not all at once, but, I mean, heaven is going to be a glorious time of discovery. But it's not going to be a time of discovery about the things that we already know. When we're in heaven, we're going to have a full knowledge of everything that was written to us in the Word. It's sort of like now we get the movie script in heaven, we get to see the movie. I've often thought, and I have no basis biblically for this statement at all, but I've often thought that we're going to get to see videos, real-time videos. Remember, we're going to be outside of the time in the, 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 the time and space. And I've always thought that we're going to be able to see, like looking at videos of things as they occurred. When the Exodus Jews were getting water from a rock, We're going to be there with the rock who gave the water. And it will be absolutely glorious. It will be fun. It will be thrilling. Um, but I think the transition from earth to heaven and the, the, the knowledge being full and complete, knowing as we are known by God, that we'll have all of that uh, that information. But, but whatever... And however it works out, Lori, I think what we're going to be able to find is that it's more than we could ask or imagine. More than we could ask or imagine. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait for Paula to really and truly understand how much she's loved by God. And how grateful to God for her I am. I can tell her. I hope I show her. But I really believe that when we're in heaven together, God's going to make her hang out with me, even though we're not going to be married. I think she's going to look at me, and, and she's got this face that I can't even describe now, but I think she's going to look at me and say, Wow, you really did love me. I'm going to say, didn't do. <laughs> so I can't wait to get there. That's all I know for sure. Thank you very, very much, Lord, for the question. Here is a question from Anonymous. Uh, I'm going to take enough time with this. This will probably be the last question. We're going to have about four minutes. Um, it says, my teenage son seems to be trying his best to drive me crazy. He grows his hair too long. He keeps bugging me to let him get tattoos and he dresses in rags. What am I doing wrong? Um, Anonymous, I don't know what you're doing wrong, if you're doing anything wrong at all. But understand, your teenage son is a different person than you are. It would be wrong to try to make him in your image. Um, I tell the parents here uh, at Calvary Chapel to say yes to their kids as often as they can. And the reason I say that is because there's so many times we have to say no to them. Hair is simply not a field to die on. My kids are grown up, but I always told them, what you do with your hair is up to you. Just make sure it's clean. Don't let it get filthy. If it's clean, that's yours. I, I didn't want my children hear me say no over something that really didn't matter. The way they dress. Uh, I, I've got a bunch of ladies, including my wife, who often dress in rags. Now, they paid a whole bunch of money for those rags, but they got holes in the jeans and stuff. That's a style. They're different. So dressed, it isn't evil. I mean, if he's dressing in all black and gothy stuff, that, that'd be different. But... But if he just doesn't dress to your satisfaction, give him some space to grow. 
Now let me deal with the tattoos. It would be irresponsible of a parent to let a child get something done to their body that's permanent until that child is independent enough and old and mature enough to make a decision about permanent things. And if they make the decision to get tattoos as soon as they get out of the house and they're on their own, well, then that's between them and the Lord. But we don't want to give our kids the impression that God always says no. So love your son. Take him to church. Make sure he goes. Make sure that he's in the Word. Make sure that you have family devotions going on. And then one day, who knows, he'll come to his senses and make a choice to serve Jesus Christ. But don't let him frustrate you or fluster you. Give him some room to be him. And as long as that isn't offensive, evil, or wicked, then understand it's just different. And maybe one day he'll say, you know, her Jesus wasn't as bad as I thought he was. So I think that's really, really important. Again, let me say this one more time and then we'll get ready to close here. Say yes as often as you can. Because we have to say no in this world to so many things. Say yes as often as you can. Thanks for tuning in today. Um, Enjoy your families. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You've been listening to The Word to Stand In for Life. Great Bible study tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Tomorrow, Paula live in studio on the date day edition of the program. Thanks for tuning in. We'll, Lord willing, see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.